everyone. Welcome to the Chicago Justice Podcast. I'm your host, Tracy Siska. I'm also Executive Director of the Chicago Justice Project. You can find out more about what we do and our current fundraising campaign at chicagojustice.org. Today, I bring you an interview with Nicole Negretti from the Final Five campaign, the campaign to close the last five juvenile, well, they call them youth centers in Illinois, but they're basically just juvenile prisons or juvenile youth detention centers. There's one, um, the juvenile temporary detention centers over kind of near Little Italy, over by the FBI, over by um, the hospital, uh, the medical district in Chicago. And then there's four more spread across the state. And the state is actually building another one, even though the population has gone down from, God, I think it was 1,200 to about 100 kids now. Why they're building a new one? Who knows? Okay. Anyways, we'll be talking to Nicole about all of that. But first, real quick, go to CJP's in the midst of our 15-year annual 15th anniversary celebration for fundraising, celebrating what we do and trying to get funds to keep up what we're doing. So you go to chicagojustice.org and click donate in the upper right-hand corner. You can also drop us a line to any of our social media, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram. And we're probably on more. We're on YouTube. If you're watching this on YouTube, we're obviously on YouTube. You can drop us a note anywhere there or, or at info at chicagojustice.org if you want to be, help us fundraise and fundraise from your friends, families, colleagues. That would be great. We have a couple of people already doing that for us, and more is always welcome. Also, a couple other updates. If you're watching this on YouTube, and if you're not you're listening to podcasts, coming up on YouTube in the next week, we'll, st- we'll you'll start seeing much more frequent posting on YouTube and Facebook around policy, short policy uh, videos on policy, criminal justice policy, public policy, analysis of media coverage. Um, the podcasting will be much more focused on interviews and um, the shorter stuff around policies and media coverage of things, the horrible story by the Sun-Times recently on uh, arrests related to violence in Chicago while they were down. It's a really bad one. Anyways, that stuff's going to be uh, much more on YouTube and Facebook and possibly going, moving to um, TikTok and to our Instagram feed. So that's all going to be starting up, revving up in the next week or two. And also there are going to be podcast extras and behind the scenes and strategy, how uh, CJP is doing uh, with strategy videos about how we're doing our FOIA and transparency and litigation work at our Patreon. You can go to uh, Patreon and just search Chicago Justice Project. You will find us. And you can get access by becoming a donor there. And I think you can do it as little as 5 or $10 a month, and you'll get all the content everyone else does. So we'd really appreciate it. Okay. So we have a really great interview. It's really interesting hearing um, the perspective on juvenile detention facilities, juvenile jails, whatever you want to call them, from the perspective of youth that have been affected by it, either incarcerated or had their loved, loved ones or friends incarcerated. And that's where we get with this interview with uh, Nicole Negretti. We're really happy she chose to sit down with us. So I will be back after that conversation. Nicole Negretti from the Final Five campaign. Thank you so much for jumping on the pod. We really appreciate it. Hi, thanks, Tracy. It's great to be here talking to you. All right. So explain to my audience, what is the Final Five campaign? Yes, the Final Five campaign, um, we're a group of directly impacted young people and allies, and we're calling on Illinois to close down 
the five remaining youth prisons, and then in turn use the cost savings to fund community-directed resources and responses to harm. Um, directly impacted young people means um, currently and formerly incarcerated youth, as well as young people who have been impacted by incarceration of their family members or community members. Um, so just anyone who's felt those impacts. Um, so we're really led by youth and young adults who have experienced themselves and are very aware of what goes on both in the state youth prison facilities as well as other detention facilities around the state. So when I came across being an older gentleman that I am, when I came across this campaign, um, it brought to memories of me of uh, whenever I hear about youth uh, detention facilities, I think of Philadelphia. I think of what happened in Pennsylvania where the judges, there's a um, documentary about it. I actually was on a call with one of the lawyers before the document, way before the documentary was even thought of, but with judges taking kickbacks to throw um, youth into a juvenile detention facility, at least that's what the documentary alleged. Um, so that was one of the reasons why I was so attracted to getting you on is because I wanted to find out if that's what was going on here, or if it's just um, run of the mill, just bad justice system. So when you say like, um, let's say, give us an idea like what type of um, allegations, I should say, would get someone in a youth incarcerated in a juvenile um, youth facility, I guess is what youth center is what I'm supposed to call mm -hmm. it. Right. What, yes. what type of behaviors, what's the range of behaviors that would get people, get youth locked up in these facilities? Right. So, yes, in Illinois, um, how they refer to the state run um, youth prisons is Illinois Youth Centers or IYCs. Within the campaign, we refer to them as youth prisons. That's what they are. So that's probably how I'll just refer to it throughout the rest. Um, but, you know, there's been... Um, Quite a, quite a history of these youth centers over um, the last years and since IDJJ, the Illinois Department of Juvenile Justice was created as its own agency. Um, but so 10 years ago, you could see really youth with like any type of violation in there, you know, um, you know even as much as, as little as 10 years ago when the population was much higher. Um, many technical, technical violations, um, you know, so things related to curfew, even just like arguments with parents. Um, one lawyer told me once about a client who was over 18, but like sent back to IDJJ for six months because he drank a beer on a Friday night. So, you know, back 10 years ago, it could be, it could run the gamut of the, the smallest of violations. Um, a lot of changes have happened since then. And now, um, you know, it's they, what IDJJ kind of um, communicates is that they only detain um, youth with the most serious of offenses. You know, so if they break it down by felony class, most of them are um, in like the class three and four felonies, um, not as many of the class one and two. And no, um, they since changed it so that juveniles cannot be sent to the facilities for misdemeanors. So, you know, from IDJJ standpoint, it's young people who have committed, you know, quote unquote, the most serious of crimes. So, you know, various types of like aggravated battery, there's a small number of murder cases in there. So, so besides just, um, I think more or less being an abolition focused organization, um, what have been, and just being against them, which I can understand that, what has been, have there been problems in how these youth centers have been run? What have been the experiences besides just the, the problem of locking youth up in general? 
what are literally the problems that the youth are experiencing in the centers? Yeah, well, like you said, um, or as you alluded to, and I'll just state this explicitly, we are an abolitionist organization. You know, we believe that kids, teens, young adults, really any adults for that member um, should be locked up. We believe it's harmful. We believe it's ineffective. Um, so then on top of that, there have been many, many issues with the Illinois youth prisons over the years. Um, as I mentioned, our campaign, um, we are a group of uh, majority directly impacted young people, many of whom were um, have been incarcerated in the facilities. Um, and this includes some young people who were there, you know, within the last, um, or, you know, more than five years ago. So back when things were even worse, and it was back then, um, you know, even as, as little as like seven years ago and going beyond that, there were just countless um, reports and non-reports of um, staff abuse, you know, whether it be through physical assault, provoking fights within the youth. Um, there's been plenty of instances of sexual relations between youth and the staff members that have resulted in um, some people getting pregnant and kids being born that way. So, you know, so that type of staff abuse really ran the gamut of every type of thing that could be happening. Um, historically, some of the facilities have just been in really terrible condition, you know, people finding like um, lice or bed bugs, um, pests of various types. Um, so, you know, just general like facility degrading. And then um, just in terms of what they're actually able to do in the facilities, you know, their school, other programming, other resources is just really limited. The, the school is like a joke, practically. They kind of just put them on a computer and have them go through the lessons. Um, programming, um, particularly during COVID, you know, has is really inconsistent, um, especially when you're thinking of some of the facilities that are um, not in Chicago or not close to Chicago. Um, there's just really not much for the youth to do. So it's just a lot of isolation um, poor conditions around them, um, potentially abusive or, um, you know, at the very least, like just very not, um, staff members who, yeah, are either abusive or, you know, have tried to practice some type of like control over the youth that's more than what's warranted just to, you know, like we, we hear this from um, both the formerly incarcerated young people and we work with some currently incarcerated young people, you know, just talking about how, you know, correctional officers will just try to exert their control in whatever way when it's really not necessary or try to find ways to get the youth to act out so then they can put them in isolation for a behavioral hold or something like that. So it really runs the gamut of all the possible problems that you could imagine there could be in a detention facility. So if you look in traditionally and even currently, is there other racial or socioeconomic trends in the youth that end up in these facilities? Very much so. Um, so at any given time, the, the racial breakdown is 70% or higher are Black youth, which, you know, compared to the percentage of black youth that there are in the state, it makes up like somewhere around 20% or a little under that. So that's a huge disparity right there. Um, just how many black youth are locked up in the facilities. Um, and definitely um, socioeconomic plays a big role as well, you know, in talking to uh, members of our campaign and other um, incarcerated young people, you know, we hear a lot about just issues with, um, you know, 
have wherever they came home from, like either they're, you know, they're not really like around their parents who have a stable income or their parents don't have a stable income if they are living with them um, or the just in general sharing about how, you know, their electricity has always been turned off being um, unhoused or just unstably housed. Um, so like in, in general, just, I don't, I don't know as much of, about in terms of like what the, um, um, I don't know as much in, in terms of, you know, statistically what percentage come from what socioeconomic class, but from hearing from the youth, it's, it's very clear that many of them come from, um, come from communities and homes where they just really do not have access to a lot of income or resources. All right, so are there, are there people in the state that have benefited or are still benefiting from these facilities being opened or existing? Definitely. Yes, definitely. So the, the IDJJ budget for um, the 2021 fiscal year was a little over $120 million. Um, and at any given time, you know, there's somewhere between it's the the total number of youth in the facilities it's been hovering around like 100 120 it's a bit higher right now closer to 150 but you know if you do simple math and break that down and think about how much money is being spent per youth in the system it's a lot and much of that money is going towards staff salaries so in large part um, the staff are people who greatly benefit from this. You know, they're part of the um, same unions as um, IDOC, the Illinois Department of Corrections that, you know, runs all the county jails and um, adult state prisons. Um, you know, they have a very strong union. They make very good salaries, you know, have the opportunity to get pensions, all these things. So I would say that they're some of the people who like kind of benefit the most, you know, if you're looking at it really tangibly. And then I would say, I don't know, you know, thing about women in Pennsylvania. I don't know anything about that in terms of like judges getting kickbacks for, you know, sending young people to these facilities. I could imagine that could have been part of it back in the day when they were just sending, you know, basically everyone that they could. I could totally see that being part of it. But, I, you know, I haven't personally heard about any of that. Um, but, you know, ultimately it's, it's a lot of it is if we're thinking, you know, kind of more, um, like broadly in terms of who benefits, you know, just throughout the state, whether it be um, just regular community members or elected officials, you know, there's plenty who um, are very much more on the tough on crime train and, you know, having youth prisons is a way to say like, it's okay, you know, all these carjackings are happening by young people, but it's okay because we're able to send them to prison and they're able to be punished and all this stuff. So you know, very tangibly money-wise, definitely the staff. And then just in, in like a broader sense, you know, anyone who operates from more of a tough on crime mindset or just any mindset of like any safety issue needs to be dealt with, with just sending people away to prison, having the youth prisons makes those people feel good. Yeah, I imagine it's like just with IDOC, it's like these, I'm imagining these facilities are in rural towns. Yes, many of right. them are. So there's one in Chicago, uh -huh. and then the rest are in Warrenville and St. Charles up up this way, and then further down south, Pier Marquette and Harrisburg, and then they're actually building a sixth one in Lincoln, Illinois, which is where um, like the Logan State Prison is in the middle yes. of the state. Yeah, strangers are building a new one. Okay, yeah. so as I looked at some through some of your materials and looking up stuff on these facilities, 
So there used to be 10 facilities, 1,200, about 1,200 youth incarcerated in them. Now there's about five, although it seems like they're building another one. And they house now about 100 youth. Mm -hmm. So theoretically doing that math, there's about 1,100 youth that are no longer incarcerated in these facilities every year. What's happening to these youth then if they're not going into these facilities? Yeah, so a lot of that is due to, you know, what I was mentioning before, just in terms of like what violations can ultimately land a young person in one of these facilities, you know, just there's, there's limits now on who can be sent to, to the youth prisons, um, in that no one, no, dis, dis, no, no misdemeanors um, will qualify for being sent to the youth prison. Um, and some of the lower um, lower level felonies might not necessarily end people up there. So just that of like cutting out a whole, you know, people who are just, you know, might be um, convicted of misdemeanors or lower class felonies. They're just not being sent to the youth prisons. In some cases, um, they do end up um, on some type of, diversion program or probation program. Um, so there is the state program redeploy Illinois, um, which, you know, allows local jurisdictions to um, have youth diverted to participate in um, local services rather than sending them to IDJJ. Um, Cook County um, does not participate in this program. Uh, Judge Evans is very against that. Um, so we, you know, in, in Cook County, that's not as available, but in some other places, you know, some of them do end up in diversion programs. Um, and there was a big change in that um, IDJJ used to um, use IDOC parole agents when young people were released from the youth prison. So it was the same parole system as the adult um, IDOC. Um, they changed that um, several years back where IDJJ now operates its own parole probation program called Aftercare. So, you know, in the past, many people might be, many young people would, you know, have gone to a facility or be on, um, at the time, what was IDOC parole, they would have a technical violation and be sent back. That's changed a lot now. Um, they, for IDJJ, the, the new system that they have is called Aftercare they you know what they state is that they don't send people back for technical parole violations um before you know exhausting trying to refer them all to all types of community-based resources and services first so um technical violations fall in a lot um and there's just more young people potentially in some of these diversion programs or probation programs or something of the sort okay so was okay what types of programs need to be created to support youth in Illinois so that we're not, they're not becoming justice system involved in the beginning? Mm -hmm. um, so this is a huge question and like a, a huge part of our work that we focus on along with advocating for the closure of the youth prisons. Um, at the, and at the end of the day, you know, my, you know, kind of, smart ass answer is that like there's not like one solution that we can say or one type of program that we can say it's so many different things that need to happen um and at the end of the day it really needs to come down to like talking to the young people and figuring out exactly what that is and actually putting that into action you know because both within 
our campaign and with other young people we talk to, we, we talk about this a lot, like what would you want instead of these youth prisons? And the answers run a whole wide range from, you know, free youth programs and after school programs, mentorship programs, um, a, a basketball court that people can use for free, um, ways to learn how to do various types of, um, you know, workforce skills, um, basic needs being met like housing and um, food and things that just like reduce kind of like the stress and hardship that young people are experiencing because at the end of the day, it's like, it's, it's so hard to like really grow up and develop when you don't have access to so many things, when your community has been divested in, when there's no grocery stores, no good parks around you, um, you know, for, for young people who are in more rural parts of the state, there's literally just nothing, you know, they need things to do, places to go. Um, so it's, it's hard to say because there's so many different things that are needed, ranging from basic needs to infrastructure developments to programs, um, you know, that should be there as a starting point, like this is the foundation for helping young people be able to um, just like grow up and thrive and stuff, you know, without having to, you know, resort to like crimes of desperation and, and whatnot. And then in terms of when harm is occurring, when youth are arrested, um, you know, there's so many other types of responses to harm that could be happening rather than you know isolating them from their communities and sending them away you know that we we talk a lot and and we work a lot with restorative justice practitioners within the final five campaign um who do work like within communities and like so meaning like within neighborhoods sometimes within even just like a few block radius of when harm is happening you know people who are close to the young person who um you know committed whatever type of harm they are involved in helping like work through it for that person as well as for the person that they harmed and you know it's it's much more complex than like that very simplistic mm -hmm. um explanation of it but you know just other types of responses to harm that don't just automatically go to like punishment and restriction and isolation so are there um specific parts of the state or specific cities slash towns that my dog Pepper, I guess, wants to talk about it. Um, but are there, are there specific parts of the state that are driving the population in these facilities or was there traditionally and is there now? Yes, yeah, so definitely um, Cook County sends the most um, young people to the facilities um, by far. And then in general, you know, it's vast majority are from like the north and, and central central regions of the state. Um, so there are like, there are some counties that, you know, have the, the highest rates, like I said, Cook County, Peoria, um, Rock Island, like to name a few. And you know, when you're thinking about Cook County, obviously that's where Chicago is. Many of the young people are coming from Chicago. Um, and, you know, part of it coming from, you know, in terms of like a large population coming from here, you know, there's a lot of different reasons, larger population in general, more policing, um, you know, all that stuff. But at the same time, you know, like I mentioned, Cook County is not redeploy Illinois so may not have access to a lot of um, other these like diversion program options that other youth in other counties may have 
Um, when we're thinking of, you know, in the central region, which, you know, sounds like a, it's from various counties, but somewhere around like 40% of the population is from the central region of the state. When you think there, it's, you know, a lot of very rural areas, um, not a lot of resources and opportunity around there. Along with that, you know, some of the towns have a very like prison oriented mindset because that's where a lot of the IDOC facilities are, um, along with the towns, you know, a lot of times being very white. And if you are like a black young person in that community, you know, you're gonna be much more likely to get picked up for something than some of your other white peers in the area. So it's, it's definitely a combination of like, you know, the access to resources and just like access to, you know, community-based like response to harm and everything like I was mentioning. Okay, last question, and I ask a lot of my guests about this when we're talking about, you know, uh, crime and violence issues. I just want to get your opinion from on it. What percentage of the the these act, crime and violence that's perpetrated by youth in the state is driven in part or mostly by the effects of poverty? I would say probably a great deal about it, um, or a great deal of it. Um, it's, you know, when we, when we think about like gun violence, community safety, crime, you know, whatever word we're using, um, many times it's often, sometimes, you know, the crimes are directly related to a poverty issue, you know, whether it be burglary, stealing, um, you know, those types of things, actually trying to like get material things to support their income needs. Um, and at the same time, you know, aside from those types of crimes that are like directly tied into poverty, even if something might not like on its surface look like it is, when you think about, you know, the type of like the, the level of sort of like scarcity that comes with low poverty and just like the lack of access to, to resources, but also lack of access to opportunities, to good spaces, all these things. Like this is, you know, these are the types of things that can lead to feelings of desperation because you just like, you don't know where to turn. You don't know where to find your way out or find your way to something that like is really enjoyable to you that you're able to do in a safe way in a way that allows you to like have all your basic needs met and everything. Um, and then, you know, desperation can also lead to all these various types of harm, whether it be through just who you end up around, um, just kind of by, by luck in terms of, you know, your low, you know, low poverty or high poverty areas, you know, oftentimes will have just like so many things going on that you could get caught up in. Um, and a lot of it just like kind of comes from that, that desperation that can lead to types of like harm or, um, you know, trying to just get resources for yourself, for your family. So it plays a huge role. And, you know, if we, if we think about it in the context of Chicago specifically, um, it's, you know, you just look at the city, you look at the segregation, you look at what goes into many of like the north side communities versus what goes into the south and west side communities. Um, it's just, it's such a different life. It's, it's such a different way of being that at the end of the day, you know, like, I, you know, I can say all this from based off my um, research and talking to young people and everything, but you know, at the end of the day, again, it's, 
the, it might be very different for some of the young people um, in terms of thinking of how poverty connects to it. Um, you know, from a zoomed out view, I can very much look at it that way. But, you know, for a young person, it's, you know, what their life is what they know. So they might not necessarily tie it into poverty or something, um, but it's just kind of sometimes just what they know and what's around them and what's available to them. So poverty is a big part. And there's also many other things that go into it. Yeah, I've always told people like poverty is the existential, existential, I'm mispronouncing that horribly, existential stressor on everything you do. Every aspect of your life is impacted by that poverty. Um, mm -hmm. And and this is what I would say with the, you know, COVID. And like, I, if you had told me before COVID hit, like six months before COVID hit or like a week before it hit, like, hey, there's going to be this worldwide pandemic and it's going to affect um, entire countries and you know the entire globe and this is what it's going to do to cities and this is what it's going to shut down um do you think crime is going to rise my answer would have been um yes like mm -hmm. how do you not see that coming because all the other parts of their lives are especially when you're talking in chicago are under such threat and not any major city any city really is are under such stress all the time that adding COVID on top of it and everything COVID does to your the, your ability to make money and stay safe. So I saw, I to me, that was, it's, it's all been 100% foreseeable. Um, mm -hmm. I'm dismayed whenever I talk to reformers or politicians, um, especially politicians, academic researchers. You know, it's always like this one program is going to be the solution, the overall solution to crime and violence in the city. It's like, right. That one solution ain't poverty, it isn't going to be. It doesn't mean getting rid of poverty is going to stop every crime because it's not. Right. But it's going to so seriously reduce it that we can mm -hmm. then go and target things towards what's remaining. Um, right. Yeah. That has at least and always think, been my view. Yeah. And yeah, I, I definitely agree with that. And, you know, so many times when people are thinking of like the, the solutions to crime, gun violence, um, whatever it may be, carjackings, you know, so many times people are looking for that one solution or that one policy, that one type of program. Um, and, you know, like I said before, it's, it's, it's so many different things. And I think a lot of times people are um, wary and wary to like accept that that's the solution because there's no specific thing to point to you know they want to say like this evidence-based program yep. will reduce crime by this amount of percent and like it's not that simple um you know just slapping on a policy that like keeps youth out of millennium park for example or that you know locks them in their houses earlier for example that's not going to solve youth crime um it's you know it's it's not even a band-aid on a gunshot to use that analogy. It's, I don't even know what that is in comparison to like what the whole holistic view of the issue is. It's so it's many a, different things. And it, it, it takes patience and just trust that like people in their communities that they use, like what they're saying is like, they know what they're talking about. They know what they're asking for. And it's, it means a, a million different solutions, you know, from community to community, from block to block, from family to family. So that's not an easy thing for, you know, like policymakers and elected officials to look at because that seems very daunting and overwhelming, um, understandably yeah. so. But it, it, I call it propaganda. It's much easier to change the curfew an hour and say, I did everything I could. It's going to be the solution. Right, it hasn't right. been the solution in any city around the country. Mm -hmm. And if violence is up and um, 
all of, the same types of violence are up in all the cities all over the country, almost all of them. And the smaller the city gets, the worse the crime is per capita. Mm -hmm. um, how you're expecting any one politician, any one place to come up with that solution. Um, and now that we're in election season in Chicago, while the midterms are coming and then we got election season in Chicago, crime and violence are going to be abused, used and abused for political purposes. All right, Nicole Negretti, thank you so much for jumping on with us. I really appreciate it. Yeah, thank you so much. Happy to talk about this. Okay, we're back. Once again, we'd like to thank Nicole Negretti for sitting down with us. I hope you enjoyed the conversation as much as we did. If you're listening to the podcast, links to everything involved will be up on the post on our website. If you're watching on Facebook or YouTube or other social media, um, in the notes will be links. Links for what? One thing, the documentary that I could not think of related to Philadelphia was called Cash for Kids. It's fascinating. If you get a chance and can watch it on a streaming service, I highly recommend it. I am not sure. I mean, I just think it's really interesting. I'm not saying that's what's going on in Chicago, but I think it's um, it adds to the conversation and the depth of knowledge around juvenile detention, not only in Illinois, but across the country. Um, it's a fascinating, fascinating documentary. The issue around incarcerating youth, I'm very happy to see that we have gone down from you know, over a thousand to around 150 now. I'd like to see that number lower. You know, we have a knee-jerk reaction in this country, especially in the city, in the city of Chicago, but around the country also, to just incarcerate anyone and everyone. And it just isn't always the answer. That's There's no doubt about the fact that it isn't the answer for so much of what we try to make it the answer for. Um, so... Just it's just the whole situation's pretty sad. Um, with people like Nicole getting up and being empowered and having a voice, there's sure good things on the horizon. And really quickly, so this is posting. I believe it's going to post on Thursday the twenty first, um, both um, in the podcast and on YouTube and Facebook shortly thereafter. We have already in the can an interview with Deborah Witzberg, the now newly installed inspector general for the city of chicago she was previously the deputy public safety inspector general she's appeared on our old live show and our podcast many times so that interview is done and we'll be posting next week both to the podcast and our various social media things various social media uh, platforms so uh, keep an eye out for that and once again if you want to get involved in donating info chicagojustice.org hit us up on any of our social media and if you got ideas for who you want to be interviewed in the podcast, drop us any you know comments on any of the social media. Um, we'd really be interested in who you think should be on the pod, and we'll try to make that work. Thank you so much.